Hi, my name is Danielle and you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this podcast, we discuss subjects that might be creepy to some and sometimes even frightening. Some of our episodes will deal with serious subject matter, while others will be more lighthearted. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover, just an interested party, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone and welcome back. I'm Danielle. I'm Paul And you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this week's episode, we will be discussing the Beothuk Genocide. Now, I've seen it referred to as a genocide, a massacre, and an extinction. I've chosen to refer to it as a genocide, though I know there might be people with different opinions out there that would prefer to have it referred to in a different way. I chose that term. I did feel like it was the most fitting, but I do understand that some people might disagree with me. I think all three terms are probably acceptable. But at the end, it's a genocide, and the end result was the same. The Beothuk people of Newfoundland were the first Indigenous people to come into contact with Europeans, according to ictinc.ca. Just as a disclaimer here, I'm going to do my best to pronounce things as well as possible. I did look things up and listen to different pronunciations, but did find mixed information on it, so I apologize for my errors in advance. According to Wikipedia, the estimates of the Beothic population at the time of the first contact varied from 500 to 2,000 individuals, and they generally lived in groups of 30 to 55 people or families. I'm guessing the reason the numbers varied so much, I mean, there wasn't a census back then, so probably different people reported different numbers depending on how many people they'd encountered. I think they were spread out pretty thin also because of the nature of the the, the island and, and probably lived mostly along the coast and contact with each other would have been somewhat difficult then. Exactly, and we're going to get into that, but I think just the nature of their lifestyle as well meant that you couldn't have more than those 30 to 55 people on a certain territory. They lived in conical dwellings that were called mammatiques, and they survived by hunting and gathering. Because of this, the Beothuks would follow their food source seasonally. So they lived mainly off of salmon, caribou, and seal, as well as plant species. Because they followed the migratory pattern of their food source, they spent part of their time living inland, but in the summer and early fall, they would move to the coast to fish. Also, like I was saying earlier, because of that lifestyle, to have a sustainable food source, you could only have so many people on a territory. And when they were on the coast fishing, again, it was a seasonal thing. Whenever the seals were in harbor or the salmon were running, Mm -hmm. that had an impact on where they were. The first contact that they would have had with outsiders would have been with the Norse, who were only there in a temporary manner, and this would have been followed by John Cabot and the Europeans. When the first explorers made seasonal camps, they were all able to coexist quite peacefully with the Beothuks. 
They would barter and trade, and then the explorers would leave until the following year. But once the explorers started making more permanent structures and stayed through the year, the problem started to escalate for the Beothooks. They generally tried to avoid contact with the settlers, and any contact that they ended up having was often negative for one side or the other. The groups were competing for resources in the area, and the settlers forced the Beothook to move inland. The violence between the groups escalated, and because the Europeans had firearms, they tended to have the upper hand. The Beothic people never demonstrated any interest in acquiring any kind of firearm. As the Beothics tried to avoid the settlers, they moved to different coastal regions around Newfoundland, but these moves would only help them temporarily. They kept getting overrun. So it didn't matter where they went, the Europeans were following. Right, so they could set up somewhere temporarily and then the Europeans were on that territory so they had to move further because violence would ensue. They moved further and further inland but because of this two of their main food sources weren't available to them anymore so they couldn't fish and they couldn't hunt seal. And at that time the big game would have been the caribou. There were no moose in Newfoundland then. Mm -hmm. There was deer as well, and they did hunt deer. They set up deer fences and things like that, but a deer and a caribou, not being an, being an expert here at all, but I think a deer is quite a bit smaller than a caribou. Yes. As a consequence of them being more inland, they had to hunt more caribou, but this led to overhunting of the population, which meant an even more dwindling food supply. Their move inland changed the habitat that they were used to living in. Because of this, they ended up undernourished and many of them died of starvation. So they were competing for the same food source, but the Europeans were better equipped and probably both for harvesting and they had weapons, so the people didn't have very much option than to move. They had very little option but to move. They were just, they were basically, I mean, I guess the term is outgunned. They had no guns. So we all know in, in terms of violence, I mean, you've heard the expression, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. So they would have to move. If the Europeans came, if they didn't want their people to get hurt or die, they would just have to move. They had no choice. So they did what they had to do to survive, but that just furthered their problem where they had they no longer had enough caribou or enough food to sustain them and if they were living in small groups of about 30 people they were probably outnumbered just by the number of people that would be on a big ship for sure so at the start of the 19th century we found ourselves again with a discrepancy in the in the estimated number of Beothuk which ranged at this point from 150 to 3,000. So, I mean, their population is dwindling. I think 3,000 is definitely an overestimation of how many people there were. Another thing that caused problems for them is there were displaced Mi'kmaq from Cape Breton that were brought to Newfoundland. 
and the Inuit from Labrador were also trying to retain some territory. So the European exploration basically took over and all of the indigenous people were fighting to have a piece of territory and kept being driven off their land. So everyone was just fighting for survival at this point. Many factors contributed to the dwindling numbers of Beothuk. Namely, there was the loss of access to food, which we talked about. There was infectious disease, which was introduced by the Europeans. So a lot of the disease that they brought with them, they didn't have immunity for. So this, something that would not or not affect Europeans seriously could decimate the Beothuk population. Yeah, and the European would have not even known that they were carrying a specific virus. Correct. Not, they wouldn't have been feeling sick or anything, but were passing it on to the First Nations people that were there. Right, so they had immunity to it. They wouldn't have had a problem, but just having immunity to something doesn't mean that you're not a carrier for it. And another big problem was tuberculosis. So a lot of them died from tuberculosis. And again, not an expert on tuberculosis, but my understanding is if you're malnourished, and you're not able to keep warm, so generally not healthy, you're going to be more prone to catching tuberculosis and dying more quickly from it. Well, you'd be more prone to any disease that's... Mm, that's true. ...that you have no immunity to if, you're, if your system is low in, in nutrients. And But, you know, it must have been really frightening to see all those European ships arriving. It's something that they had never seen before. We're dealing with people that they had never seen before. It must have been just a terrible ordeal. But imagine just having to live through all of your people dying, like you're seeing them, you're seeing your whole culture pass away in front of you. Another big problem was the violent encounters. According to ictinc.ca, the settlers, or the European explorers, were also hunting and killing the Beothuk, trying to get rid of them. So political leaders allegedly grew concerned about what was happening to the Beothuk. And instead of calling for a halt to the killing or trying to give them some resources to survive, they decided that they would pay a reward for every Beothuk captured alive. Apparently the plan was to treat them well and to try to assimilate them to European culture and then returned them to their families where they could in turn assimilate their loved ones. So it's similar to the idea behind the residential schools, but at an early stage. It's a terrible idea. I mean, we look at that now and it's a shocking thought. Obviously, this plan from the political, from the political leaders didn't work out very well. It only escalated the violence as the Europeans tried to capture the Beothooks by any means necessary to get the reward money. On the other hand, for the Beothooks, if they assimilated to the European culture, in their belief, their spirits would not have access to the spirit island, where that's where they believed their spirits would go once they left the, their current world. According to heritagenewfoundland.ca, the spirit island is where the good spirits go after their physical death. So it's basically their religion. It's their spiritual beliefs, yeah. 
not only did they not have anyone defending them, but the people that were trying to help in their unhelpful way also didn't understand their culture. So not only what they were doing was unhelpful, but even just trying to get them to assimilate was actually against their spiritual beliefs. So like it was completely pointless because they had no understanding of what they were trying to do. I don't even know how they would have been able to communicate that message or that way of thinking with them. Yeah, I don't know to what point they understood each other's language. Like, I don't think there was a lot. You know, some for different First Nations groups, sometimes there were missionaries that would go in or just people who would join them and the language would get learned that way. But with the Beothooks, I don't know that that happened. By 1823, the Beothooks were all but gone. Only a handful were believed to have survived. In April of 1823, trappers came across three starving Beothuk women. It was a mother and her two daughters. The mother, Duda Beauchette, and one of her daughters, who they called Easter Eve, uh, her Beothuk name is not known, they were both starving and sick with tuberculosis and they died very shortly after being captured. The other daughter, Shanoa Ditith, though she was malnourished, she was in relatively good health otherwise, and she did survive. She told the trappers that there were less than 15 people left in her tribe. So you've been to Newfoundland looking for 15 people mm. in Newfoundland. I mean, I can easily see, even today, how they would be able to stay away from from other people, from being seen or from being found if they didn't want to be found. For sure. I mean, the rest of the group probably was also malnourished and starving. She was brought to Exploit Island by these men and worked as a servant for about five years before being moved to St. John's, Newfoundland, where she lived under the care of a philanthropist. While she was living with, with the philanthropist, William Cormick, she provided him with information about the Beothuk beliefs and traditions. And she's the one who told him about their belief in the, in the spirit island, so that's why we know now that assimilating wasn't an option for them. So she, in spite of all the troubles and basically being a prisoner, she was able to, to, to do a big uh, service to her people by making sure their story was known. She was, and she did share some language, a lot of cultural stuff with William Cormick. So a lot of what we know is because of both of them meeting. Unfortunately, she died of tuberculosis in 1829, which was probably just about a year after meeting William Cormick. She was believed to be about 29 years old, and she was thought to be the last of the living Beothucks. But many First Nations people from Newfoundland argued this. Their oral ancestry indicated that they that there were still some alive living in Labrador and North America because they joined neighboring groups and people had gotten married and had children so in their opinion there were still Beothooks alive 
um, because they'd intermarried with different groups. An anthropologist named Inborg Marshall worked for years to try and find a way to be able to extract DNA from the remains of known Buthuk people. According to a 2017 Globe and Mail article, researchers had finally been able to sequence DNA from some of the remains. So at that time, we only knew that the DNA had been sequenced, but then in 2020, a researcher from Memorial University named Steve Carr discovered that there is evidence showing that there are still people that are related to the Beothuks, which many indigenous people from Newfoundland had maintained for years. So he found evidence of this through people's DNA. In that 2020 CBC article talking about his discovery, um, Chief Meisel Joe of the Miwapukek First Nation welcomed Carr's research, but he says that they'd known all along that this was the case, so they're happy that everyone knows now, but it was not a surprise for them. I think that history is proven uh, over and over again that the oral history passed down with the First Nations people is the actual story. And if you go back to how long they looked for the ship from the Franklin expedition and the Inuit pointing to where the, they had last seen the ship, mm -hmm. and they looked for it everywhere, and they eventually found it just a few years ago where the Inuit told them it was in the water. I think you're right, and I think those oral traditions and that oral history tends to be ignored because it's not written down, so for some reason it's given less weight. But that's how they pass along their history, first of all. But second of all, we know for a fact that a lot of the history that we have that's written down is also not accurate at all. So I think for years we all thought that, well, it's written down, it's fact. But as researchers have poured through documents and you know, looked at things more on a global scale, we've realized that just because it's written down is one person's perspective, one person's opinion. You're absolutely right. And modern people tend to believe what they're reading is the truth. And it's, it's the written story of something that was passed down uh, orally by the ancestors. And, and in stories or, or in songs or in legends. And, um, but the First Nations people have been proven time and time again that the story that they are telling is the truth. So I think there's two things to remember here is that just because someone's way of doing things is different than you doesn't mean it's wrong. But also just because it's written down doesn't mean it's right. I think it's important to remember the Beothuk people and what happened to them. Their demise is a tragic event, and like many things of that nature, we often like to pretend it didn't happen. It's, it's hard to talk about, it's hard to take a look at ourselves and see what role you know, we played as a society in it, but it did happen, and we can't just ignore it and let them disappear from history. Science has now proven that they still have descendants that are alive and every little bit of knowledge that's available from their culture needs to be put out there and kept alive for future generations. 
We're going to finish up tonight with a moment of kindness. I noticed the other day when I went for a run that a couple kilometers down the road from where I live, someone had done a neighborhood cleanup. Now I know this area, I'm assuming there was a group of people that were involved. There was a huge pile of garbage waiting to be picked up and the ditches in the area which are normally full of garbage and debris were nice and clean. I don't understand why people throw out their garbage on the side of the road and I'm not just talking about like a coffee cup tossed out. People use that area as a dumping ground. Like there were toilets and fridge doors and old TVs, like all kinds of stuff. But I think for the people who got together and picked that up, it's very important to thank them because not only did they help their neighborhood, but they also did something important for the environment. So it was a kindness to nature as well as to the people of the area. Yeah, there's a lot of communities that do that. I've seen them doing it here uh, in the nearby community. There's a whole group of people and it's like you say, like there was everything just thrown all over the side of the road. And it's great that uh, the people are cleaning up like that, but it's again, it's it's terrible that people think it's okay to just throw their trash out. I don't understand why you would have like a, I'm assuming a trunk full of garbage and pull over and throw that into the ditch, but it does seem like people do that. So anyway, I think for those neighborhood cleanups, it's really a really nice gesture that they're doing. It is. It's, it's, it's good for, for everybody. And like you say, it's good for mother earth and, uh, shows a little bit of respect for nature so it might be something to think about to join your neighborhood cleanup or get one organized um, i know here in nova scotia if you do organize one you can usually just contact the city and they'll come by and pick the stuff up you don't have to you know throw it out with your regular garbage they will organize a pickup for it as always thanks to everyone who's been listening stay safe out there and have a good night good night